You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, friends. Welcome. How are you guys feeling? Good. A couple woos. A couple like, oh, it's been a long week, maybe, potentially. We're glad you're here. Uh, If you're here for the first time or here for the hundredth time, we're glad you're joining us. Uh, I want to start our time together uh, with a story. This is the story of a woman named Anna. Anna was born in Maryland in 1813. Uh, And a month before she was born, her parents, who had previously been enslaved, were emancipated from slavery, freed, which meant Anna was the first in her family of the children to live an entirely free life. Amazing, amazing thing for her. And she was resourceful with her freedom. At age 17, she was an expert in housekeeping skills and laundry skills. And she actually got a job in a bigger city in Maryland, Baltimore at that time, to serve and care for the clothing and the bedding of the people who lived in that city. She was using her freedom to build a really sweet life for herself. And if she continued in that pathway, it'd be pretty easy comparatively to many of the folks who were enslaved. Obviously, a black woman at that time, it's still really difficult, but you're moving beyond what many other folks are are feeling, an act of abuse and oppression. Uh, And then one day, Anna, in working in Baltimore, met a man named Fred down at the docks. Fred was a slave. He had been transferred from plantation to plantation all across the state of Maryland. He was abused, brutally forced into terrible labor. He tried to flee a few times and was unable to. But he also was someone who is ingenious, who is resourceful. Many of the people who enslaved him called themselves Christians, and some of them were even ministers. A a brutal, brutal thing for us to reflect on in the church today, but it was true. And that meant many of them had Bibles scattered around. And so whenever Fred got the chance, he would grab a Bible and he'd try to read. He'd teach himself how to learn because he knew learning would lead him to freedom. So Fred continued that process, and after meeting Anna, Anna found herself at a crossroads. See, she lived a relatively comfortable life compared to that of Fred. And if she just continued to do what she did, she could have a nice little comfortable finish to her life. And yet she knew that as long as anyone who looked like her, a brother or a sister, anyone with the image of God in them was enslaved, she could never truly be free. She knew that reality, and so she decided to put her life on the line for the sake of Fred. She tried to help Fred become free. She started by selling her own mattress and making money from that sale and getting it to Fred so that he could have some funds in his next escape attempt. She used her sewing ability to sew a sailor's outfit for him so that when he fled, people would just think he was a sailor, not a runaway slave. So Fred used these items, and after a few months of failed attempts that always followed with brutal beatings, Fred finally made it out. Fred escaped to New York. That sailor's outfit got him all the way there, and then he wrote to Anna saying, hey, come and join me. And so Anna left her comfortable life behind in the city of Baltimore, moved to live with Fred. They were married soon after, and they changed their name. Anybody know what they changed their name to? Douglas. This is the story of Anna and Frederick Douglas. If Frederick Douglas rings a bell in your head, but maybe you need a reminder, he was one of the greatest American writers that's ever lived. Incredible orator, incredible statesman, and a prophet and an abolitionist. His life transformed this country. 
He was brilliant, had so much integrity, and his story doesn't happen unless an ordinary woman named Anna sews a sailor's outfit for him. His story doesn't happen unless powerful, ordinary actions came into his story. One of their daughters wrote this. She said, the story of Frederick Douglass's hopes and aspirations and longing desire for freedom had been told. You all know it. But it was a story made possible only by the unswerving loyalty of Anna Murray. Friends, what Anna did wasn't easy. She had to put her life on the line to do this. And that meant she had to ask really important questions of herself and answer really important questions. Questions like, what principles are going to rule my life? What are going to be the driving, king-oriented, ruling principles of my life? For her, it was justice. It was mercy. It was love. And then she had to look around her life and say, what have I been given? What are the things right in front of me? For her, it was practical, everyday homemaking skills, so she had to use those. And then she has to ask herself, well, what would it mean to risk those things? What would it mean to put those things on the line for justice and for mercy and for love? For her, in her time, it meant fighting the horrors and evils of slavery so that even one more person might be freed. In this next installment in our series we're calling Enduring Questions, we're going to explore a story, a parable that Jesus tells us that prompts similar questions in us. Questions that have eternal significance. Friends, your lives are not just ordinary and mundane. They have extraordinary power, even when you can't see it. And our answers to these questions have the ability to transform the world around us. So I think it's worth digging into those questions, yeah? Open a Bible if you have one. To Luke chapter 19 is where I'm going to be reading from. Luke is the third book in your New Testament. If you're flipping there, uh, we're going to have the words up on the screen for you to follow along as well. Uh, but if you have an app or a physical Bible, you can open that. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then return. So he summoned ten of his servants and gave them ten pounds, and said to them, Do business with these until I come back. But the citizens of his country hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to rule over us. And when he had returned, having received royal power, he ordered these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be summoned, so that he might find out what they had gained by trading. The first came forward and said, Lord, your pound has made ten more pounds. He said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small thing, take charge of ten cities. And then the second came, saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. He said to him, and you rule over five cities. And then the other came, saying, Lord, here is your pound. I wrapped it in a piece of cloth, for I was afraid of you, because you're a harsh man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I was a harsh man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money into the bank? Then when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. He said to the bystanders, take the pound from him and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 pounds. I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them 
here and slaughter them in my presence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you guys think of a king, what do you think of? Words or images? What comes to mind? Power? Say it again. A crown, right? Maybe a throne, a robe? Some of us might picture uh, this image here from our childhood. Yeah? Anybody? Prince John. And technically not a king, not quite a king, but similar idea, right? Prince John in that movie, he was always trying to assert his authority over others. That was part of his character. He was trying to be dominant and decisive, and it was kind of played for laughs in the movie. But in reality, all of us have this picture of a king, by and large, that involves authority and power and uh, domination over others. And that picture is centuries old. It's existed because many of the kings that we know throughout history have been that way. And that's a similar picture to what many folks in the first century had. See, the Jewish people that Jesus is speaking with here, they had a picture of God sending a king to earth. And this king was going to come with power and domination. They called him the son of man. They were expecting this king. He was going to come to redeem and restore everything. And he'd do it in one fell swoop. With his power and authority, he'd dominate. He'd condemn the enemies and he'd justify the good guys. He'd come and rule in the city of Jerusalem. That was what the scriptures talked about. In other words, the people of Jesus' day were expecting a king that was exactly the sort of king that the world had given them before. Power-oriented, authoritarian, justifying them, condemning other people. The priorities of the king would be power and self-righteousness. And then a guy named Jesus rolls around in the first century. He's a carpenter from a no-name town called Nineveh. I'm sorry, not Nineveh. Uh, Nazareth. I just read Jonah this week. That's why Nineveh's in my head. Not Nineveh. I literally just read Jonah. Nazareth, not Nineveh. No-name town. But Jesus, claiming to be the king that the scriptures were speaking about, he believed that he was the one who was come to redeem and restore all things. He said he wasn't doing it through dominance. He wasn't doing it through power and coercion. He said that this kingdom and this king was actually going to undermine all of those expectations. He said that if we want to see true harmony come, we don't get it by asserting power. We get it by serving. He said that if we want to see real reconciliation come between people, we don't force it and coerce it. It comes through repentance and forgiveness. He said that if we want to see those who are far from God redeemed, we don't overwhelm them and condemn them. We give them grace and love. It was an unworking of all of the ways that kings were expected to work in that day. I've got a visual here that might help you uh, kind of understand Jesus's picture of the kingdom. So here, this is what most of us think about when we think of kings and kingdoms. Power and domination, self-justification, coercion. And Jesus said that those principles, those actions will always lead to death. Because eventually, you're either going to get one kingdom that overwhelms another kingdom, or you're never actually going to have kingdoms work together to do this, because it's about asserting myself over the other. Jesus said the only way for healing and restoration to come is to flip that crown upside down. It's to live differently through service, through humility, through loving, through grace. That's the message that Jesus was preaching. And at this point in Luke's narrative, chapter 19, Jesus has been talking about this new kingdom all over the ancient world. He's been showing people what it looks like. He's been teaching them about how to participate in it. And he's told them that the king is here in him. The king has arrived. 
And that means that if we're going to receive him, if we're going to participate in the kingdom, then we've got to embody this alternate way of being. We've got to live as if the king is ruling over us and we are participating in that kingdom here and now. So we repent. We acknowledge that we need something beyond ourselves. We seek out the least and the last and the lost. We shun worldly power and serve instead. Receiving this king means building your life as a participant in that kingdom. And that was radically offensive to many people in his day, the Jewish people in particular, because they had been oppressed for a long time. They were the ones who actually had it figured out. So when Jesus comes and says, hey, everybody needs to repent and return to God, the Jewish people are like, what? You want me to love who? You want me to repent? I'm the one who has it figured out. I'm the one who's done all the right things for you, and you want me to change? No, no, no. The king should show up and justify me and condemn those people. That's the king that I want. And so the king that they said they were waiting for, that the scriptures pointed to, he was right in front of them. And they didn't see him because they didn't want him. They were caught up in a different kingdom of power and oppression. And that's why Jesus was killed, friends. We like to think sometimes in this, or believe in this notion that Jesus just had some nice moral teachings. He had some sweet things to tell us about how to live. Nice moral teachers don't get skewered on a cross. This doesn't happen. He was murdered because he was preaching a radically alternate spiritual and social reality. Preaching something that undermined the power of those who had power in the world. The people of his day rejected the king because they didn't want that alternate reality. And so when Jesus tells this parable, the tension is boiling over. He's about to get to the city of Jerusalem where he's going to go to his death. There are people in front of him right now who have received him, his disciples who want to participate in the kingdom, and there are people in front of him who are actively rejecting him and plotting to get rid of him. And so he's got to figure out what sort of story do I tell to that group of people as I enter in to this final week of my life. And this is the story he tells us. I think there's three questions that can guide our understanding of this story here. The first question is, who is your king? Second question is, what have you been given? And the third question is, what do you fear? Who's your king? What have you been given? And what do you fear? Jesus starts the story with a statement about a nobleman. He went to a distant country to get royal power. When we read those words, we're supposed to think of Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who is the nobleman going to a distant place. Remember the story of Jesus here. He's traveled from Galilee, north in Israel, to a distant land, Jerusalem, in order to gain power. The whole narrative of Luke has been building towards Jesus' kingship that's going to be authorized and exalted in this next week. The king narrative and the kingdom narrative keeps rolling through Luke. We're supposed to see it in the next week of Jesus. Think about it for a second, those of you that know the story. Jesus, in the next week, is going to ascend a throne. It's not a throne like the worldly thrones that we know of, right? It's a throne that looks like a cross. A throne that looks like giving my life for the sake of others, because that's what this kingdom is built on. And then he's going to have a crown dawned on him. Not a crown of beautiful worldly jewels and wealth, but a crown that indicates I'm willing to suffer for the sake of the other. And then he's going to have a robe put over him. Not a beautiful, extravagant robe, but one stained with his blood being poured out for the other, one that sticks to him in pain. It's from that place of complete self-giving love that this king and this kingdom begin. 
That's the point of Jesus' life. This nobleman is representative of Jesus, who is going from one place to another to get the royal power that he is needing to become king. And then Jesus goes away in the narrative, and we are awaiting his return today, right? The nobleman is in the faraway land right now. We're supposed to picture ourselves, and Israel is supposed to picture themselves in this story, waiting for the king to return. And then as the king exits in the story here, he gives gifts to many of his servants. And he says, do business with these. It's kind of a funny phrase. He basically is saying, work with these as if I'm around. Work with these as if I'm currently ruling even if it doesn't look like it right now, or even if you don't see me right now, work with these as if the kingdom has come. It's a command to operate as if he's here. The default assumption for the people listening in Israel and for us today is that if God is your king, then you'll embody his way of living in your life right now. You're not hunkering down and waiting around for that king to return. You are actively living as if that king is right here, right now, because he is, Jesus said. So self-sacrifice and love of the other, advocating for justice, repentance and forgiveness, those are all ways that we participate in the kingdom. And yet some of the servants in the story don't want that king. You notice that? As he's leaving, some of them send delegates to reject his kingship, to reject his rulership over them. We're supposed to think of Israel here in this story. See, for centuries, God had been revealing himself to Israel and saying, hey, live like this embody this sort of reality, and then I will come and culminate that reality with you and through you. And Israel's like, cool. And then they fail to do it over and over and over again. The prophets speak about this. They neglect the poor and needy. They don't go after the least, the last, and the lost. They don't repent. They self-justify. He says, I've had enough of your religious sacrifices and ceremonies. They've missed the heart of God. There are certain people who reject him. And it's easy for us to think, oh yeah, Israel, they, they got it wrong, right? But we often do the same sorts of things in our communities today. People who say we follow King Jesus. We do it in the church broadly and we do it in our own individual lives as well. So who is your king, right? Think about it in the church. Who do we elevate? Who do we put in front of other people? Do we put the lowly and the needy and the lost? Or do we put people who look put together, nice, neat, moral packages for others? Do we seek justice for the marginalized, for the oppressed, or do we avoid talking about those things because some people might not like it? Do we care for the sick and the needy or the vulnerable, or do we ignore them and just focus on our Sunday morning shows together? Do we give up power, or are we constantly grabbing at power in the church? trying to find political or social esteem anywhere we can get it? And do we repent in the church of the things that we've done wrong? Or do we try to self-justify? Do we shove our wrongdoings under the rug in order to elevate our own morality? Friends, if you want to know whether the church calls Jesus its king, just see if it looks like Jesus. It's the only question we have to ask. Is what the church doing looking like Jesus. And if they fail, then they've chosen another king. They've rejected the kingdom. And that's true broadly in the church, and the church is made up of all of us people as well, right? So it doesn't start by critiquing the church out there as this nebulous thing. It starts here. Jesus always tells this. You don't pull the speck out of someone else's eye if you have a log in yours. You've got to figure out what's going on here first. 
So do we emphasize sacrifice in our lives, or do we focus on comfort instead? Do we give of our time and our treasures and our talents, or do we hoard those things to ourselves? Do we regularly admit our faults? Are we willing to be wrong, or are we constantly trying to justify ourselves? Are we patient and kind and gentle, or are we angry and condemning? If we want to answer this question for ourselves, just ask, does my life look like Jesus's? And if not, what do I need to do to make it so? Let me turn to Jesus and receive his kingly power in my life once more. Because Jesus says that that's always available for us. So who's our king? That's the first question. There's a second question embedded into this story, though. What have you been given? Notice as the king is leaving, he gives his servants who are still around specific gifts. He says he gives them one pound uh, to ten different people, spreads them across ten servants. One pound in that day would be about three months' wages. So think about your salary over the course of three months. Not a small amount of money. These, he says, are to be used to utilize uh, the kingdom dynamics of the world, to embody the kingdom to the world. And a couple quick notes on these gifts. First, the amount given to each person is the same. Catch that? That's huge for us to realize. No gift that God gives any of us is intrinsically more or less valuable than another gift. And that's huge, friends, because it's easy to develop a hierarchy. It's easy for you out there to look up here and see the person speaking and say, well, that, that guy, he's got it figured out. Now, you all know me and you know I don't. But right, it's easy for us to see the person on the stage and say their gifts, they, they really are the ones who we need to elevate. They really have more pounds to work with people who teach and speak and inspire, and people who are talented musicians, like the lovely Kayla Porter, we elevate those people as if those gifts are intrinsically special. This is undermining that very notion. There is no gift in the New Testament that is better or worse than another, and in fact, we need all of them. That's why Paul gives us a picture of the church as a body. A brain without hands and without a body is dead, useless. And hands without arms, useless. Arms without a torso, useless. A torso without lungs, useless. We need every part of this body to actually live out what Jesus has called us to be and to do in the world. It's not just about speaking a certain way. Sometimes it's about being quiet. I look around this room and I see so many gifts. Jordan Hoyt, you love the marginalized and the vulnerable deeply. And you long to give your life away so that they might experience love and grace. We need your gift of service and empathy and compassion. Lauren Schrock, you're someone who deeply cares for those who are asking good questions. You're someone who longs to have purpose fulfilled in your life. You're someone who is looking out for those who are on the fringes. We need you to bring those people in. We need your gifts in this place. I could go around for the whole day, honestly. I, we don't have time, but I could go around because I know so many of you well. I know that God has given you unique gifts that he hasn't given me, and he's given me unique gifts that he hasn't given you. That's the whole point. You all can reach certain sorts of people with your pound that I can't. 
It's just true. You're in different contexts. You're in different circles. We need you to use your pound in the way that you've been given. And we need me to do the same for myself. So that's the first point Jesus gives us here about what we've been given. There's no hierarchy. It's about using what you have. That's the point of the story. And notice the results vary here, but the commendation of the king does not vary based on the results. He doesn't show up to the person who made five. He's like, well, good job, but Johnny over there made 10. You can step it up next time, right? Even the one who hoards the money, he says, all you had to do was the bare minimum. Just put it in the bank, man. Like, give me some interest. Do something with it, right? Don't just hide it. In one of the other parables, he just buries it in the ground. He doesn't think about it, right? The point of the story is not the results of using your gifts. The point of the story is that you used them, that you did something with what you have. That's the whole purpose here. None of you have to be someone that changes the world. You might just be someone who sews a sailor outfit for Frederick Douglass. You might be. You don't know. And the only way you can is if you actually use the gifts that are in front of you. Comparison, friends, is the thief of God's kingdom. And I know that because I feel it personally. I look around the world and I say, man, my church isn't as big as that person. I haven't written as many books as that person. I don't have the degrees that that person has, right? Those are the things that are important to me. Some of you are like, whatever, degrees, who cares? (laughs) Comparison will always rob me of using what I have where I am, always. There is only one person, friends, that God has called you to be in this room. You. There is plenty of everyone else's out there. We don't need another of everyone else. The only set of gifts that you are called to utilize are yours. So stop comparing. Look at what God has given you and use those gifts. Invest here in the church. Find a place somewhere in this this little community where you can use your gifts. If that's behind the scenes setting up chairs or running sound, great. If that's welcoming people because you love hospitality, awesome. If that's serving at Hope Women's Center during the week, incredible. Use your gifts somewhere. Come to a mission trip, host supper church, invite neighbors in, create spiritual conversations. Whatever your gifts are, use them. God does not require you to be anyone else in the world, only you. What have you been given, friends? What have you been given? And there's a third question embedded in the middle of the story. The question is, what do you fear? The reality is that while there are certain servants who use what the king has given them, there's another servant here that doesn't, that just buries it. And he says he did it because he was afraid. He was fearful. Well, why? Why would he be fearful? Because using three months' wages, it's risky. It is risky to put your gifts out there, whatever they are. It will involve risk. What if the results don't go as planned? The third servant has a fear of losing what he has. And so his focus is on self-preservation. His focus is on maintaining and hoarding what he has so he doesn't lose that. This kingdom of Jesus doesn't work like that, friends. In this kingdom, the one who seeks to save their life by hoarding and preserving will actually find that they lose it. But those who lose their life for Jesus' sake will always find it. That's why when the king returns, he responds in the way he does. He says those who have will get more, and those who don't have will have what they have taken away. Kind of a weird statement, a little cryptic for us to understand. 
especially since Jesus in other points says the first shall be last and last shall be first. So what's he getting at here? What he's saying is that those who have used their gifts, those who have embodied the kingdom in their life, who have given themselves away for the other, will receive more life than they had to start with. They will gain more than what they had at the beginning. And those who try to hoard what they have and keep it to themselves will lose even that. Because the point of being a human is giving yourself away for the other. To participate in this kingdom means giving yourself away, not hoarding and protecting it. It will always be risky from a human standpoint to give your money away. It just will. It's always going to be risky to love your annoying neighbor. It's always going to be risky to care for the vulnerable. It's always going to be risky to fight against the oppressor and to advocate for those who are oppressed. It's always going to be risky to confess and repent and acknowledge your brokenness. But the point of this story is that the opposite path is way riskier because it will deny your true humanity. It's far more risky not to give because eventually you're going to end up with empty wealth. There's a movie uh, that came out called All the Money in the World a few years back. Some of you may have seen it. It's about a very wealthy businessman. And uh, he is actually super stingy his whole life. That's one reason he's been able to build the wealth he does. He doesn't spend really anything on anyone, even those close to him. And at the end of his life and the end of the movie, we find out that most of his family have deserted him because they know that he cares more about money than them. He was unwilling to give himself away. His nephew was kidnapped at one point, and he refused to give the ransom money away. He's like, oh, i got to keep like My nephew's not worth that. At the end of the movie, there's a powerful scene. He's hanging on to a painting that he's held. He dies with a fire burning in his fireplace in a huge mansion all alone, clutching a painting because he has no one there. He has failed to be truly human. And so even what he has is being taken away from him in that moment. It's risky to give your wealth away. It's risky to avoid caring for the vulnerable because then you're going to miss God. Jesus tells us that it's in those who are the least and the last and the lost that we find the presence of God. Jesus says, if you care for them, you care for me. If we want to know Jesus, we've got to care for those people, he says. And so the point is not what's risky and what's not. No matter what we do, it's going to be risky. The question is, what risk is going to lead me to true life? And what risk will lead me to having what I try to possess taken away? And it's funny because I think we intuitively know that this is true. We intuitively know that if we just stay comfortable in our lives, we'll never actually grow into what we want to be. This is a, a thing that's, I think, inherent in us as humanity. If you want to learn a new language, right, you have to be willing to risk looking foolish while you speak it. If you want to truly love someone, you have to risk giving yourself away, trusting them. If you want a real friendship in your life, you're going to have to risk having that friend from time to time call you out. Growth does not happen without risk. We have to invest what we have, friends. Bernard of Clairvaux, a famous theologian, put it this way. He said, if we don't progress, we regress. There is no static faith. You don't get to a level and stay there as humans. We're always growing or regressing. Martin Luther used a Latin term to describe the Christian life, semper in muti. That's always in motion. We're always growing and learning. Christ says that there is a life in his kingdom, friends, that we are truly made for. But in order to get that life, we've got to be willing to risk what we have. We've got to be willing to grow. Fear of risk is always going to prevent us from the true life in the kingdom. So 
What do you fear? What do you fear? As Jesus wraps this parable up, he sets his eyes on Jerusalem, where he's going to give the ultimate sacrifice so that all people in this room and outside this room might get true and real life. There's just one thing about the gift of Jesus. It has to be received. There's no other way to get a gift, friends. You have to acknowledge it and receive it in your life. Jesus never forces anyone into following him. He's always putting the ball in our court to respond to his life, death, and resurrection. That's what this parable is reminding us. How are we going to respond to Jesus? It's forcing us to ask questions. Who's your king? Is it money? Or is it God? Is it the approval of others? Or your identity as a child of the Lord? Is it power and authority and success and impressiveness in the world? Or is it servanthood for the sake of the other? Who's your king? And what have you been given? What are your specific gifts? Where has God placed you? What's the neighborhood? What's the, the working space? What's the uh, church that you're in? What's the ultimate community that you're trying to serve? What have you been given? And finally, what do you fear? Losing your comfort? Losing your safety? Losing your version of what your life should look like because you want to define it for yourself? The way we answer these questions will ultimately dictate, friends, every day that we live. Anna gives us a model of how to answer these questions. How are we going to do? Because the way we do will determine whether we embody true and lasting life or whether we lose the life that we're trying to cling on to. Jesus longs for each one of you in this room to have true life in the kingdom. He longs for you to participate in this and receive it. So who's your king? What have you been given? What do you fear? Let's pray.